Thank you for listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church. We exist to seek the glory of God for the good of Brookhaven. We do this through worship that is reformed, discipleship that's relational, and mission that's neighborly. If you want to know more about Christianity or our church home, please visit our website, faithbrookhaven.org. Now for today's podcast. You're just joining us this week. We've been studying uh, the life of Peter. He was, uh, maybe we could call him the primary uh, disciple of Jesus. He's the one most mentioned, and when the disciples are listed, his name is always first. This morning, we're finding uh, Peter, an old man, probably in prison, probably in Rome. The Lord had told Peter that he would die a death similar to his own Lord. Peter, you know, we've watched grow up. He was one Jesus called from a boat to follow him, an impetuous, passionate Zealous, but sometimes suffered from foot and mouth disease, and sometimes even betrayed his Lord publicly before others to his shame. Here we find Peter the Apostle, the pastor, who is writing to the church. No one in particular, just Christians as they're spread out, primarily in what we today call Turkey. And times are hard for those Christians. And Peter writes these words which are, well, something only the Lord can do through a fisherman who often puts his foot in his mouth. They're words of beauty. And I hope that you will hear them this morning as we come and hear what Peter has to say to the church, the body of Christ, the people of God, you. He writes this, chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in the Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but... For those who do not believe, that stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now they stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's Word stands forever. Would you pray with me? Our blessed Lord, as we ponder the words Peter wrote many years ago, they are no less important for us. For the message remains to your church, which is eternal. We ask, Lord, as we live, yes, in a different time, in a different place, but with all of the same struggles and challenges and threats, we pray for mercy that we may hear your voice and respond in kind, Lord, as your people. We pray this kindness in Jesus' name. Amen. On May 7, 2008, a roadside bomb blew up underneath an American Humvee in Afghanistan. Four passengers, three of whom were killed immediately, and one survived. They were all members of the 101st Airborne Rangers. The lone survivor was, well, unconscious for weeks. And his legs were so damaged that without his knowledge, they were amputated so that he would survive. He couldn't see. He couldn't hear. He wasn't moving. He was in a coma for weeks. Believed, they thought, to well be in the kind of condition that would never recover. The nurses at the hospital on a scale of 1 to 10 as to who would survive such a coma, gave him a 1. Father would sit at the bedside, there would be no response. Mother would sit at the bedside, there'd be no response. Friends, nurses, doctors would all come pleading with him to wake up. No response. Hope was diminishing. One day, the commander-in-chief of, well, the Middle East, a name you're probably familiar with, General David Petraeus, visited the room. And he tried everything that a general would do with a soldier. Um, hang in there, young man, hoping to get some kind of response. Come on, tough guy, you can do this. Your men, they need you. Wake up. Nothing worked, even with the general. Petraeus recalls, though, in his report afterwards, that for some reason he got to the door of the room and he stopped. And he just turned his head over his shoulder. And he, he recited the motto of the 101st Airborne. One, two, three, kurahi which is a Cherokee word. It means stand alone together. All of a sudden, hearing Kurahi, the limp, comatose soldier began to move in his bed. And as was depicted in the story I read, his stumps, his legs that were amputated began to fluster under the sheets. His head began to roll back and forth, and it was obvious he was trying desperately to sit up. It was a miracle that those in the hospital room were stunned. It wasn't the explosion of bombs that were now exploding. It was joy and song and disbelief that the simple recitation of a motto 
would reach so deep into who he was that he woke up. One year later, on prosthetic legs, he walked across the stage to receive a commendation for his heroism, and he refused. He refused to take a retirement from the military. Even in his condition, he knew there's something I can still do. That is a, a taste of what the Apostle Peter is trying to speak into the lives of what we might call a comatose church. He is using language that is so marvelous about Christians whom the Lord has shown His mercy to that it is meant to reach so deep into their soul that they respond and live as they've never lived and love as they've never loved and give as they've never given in a world, a hostile environment that has and wants nothing to do with them. This is Peter's kurahi. For you and I, we, we're living in a very interesting time. I think we know that. 2020 can be marked by two words that begin with P. Pandemic, politics. And both of those have been amazing challenges for Jesus' church. Not the society, Christ's church, His people. The pandemic has exposed something in many, and this is not just here. This is, as I speak to brothers everywhere, the scattered, we fear, will remain scattered. The pandemic has given a, a license, as it were, to drift away from, well, vows to Christ and body. And that worries us. And those who remain part of the body well, they shudder at the thought. The pandemic has created fear among us and worry and anxiety. Politics, yowza. Even within the body of Christ, there are divisions, bitternesses, disunity. I have heard both sides say of their candidates, the word Savior. Scripture calls that idolatry. What we face is not much different from what these people faced. Believers in Christ in a hostile environment. How do you navigate that? What is the curry Peter uses? to reach into their souls and remind them, even though these exist, this is who you truly are. Well, I'm going to use an interesting phrase that Peter uses in the very salutation of his letter. He calls them elect exiles. Such a great combination of terms and easy to remember. The kurahi, the thing he uses, the word, the motto to stir them to a faithfulness to Christ, no matter their environments. Elect exiles. Elect. Elect is a word that the Bible uses often of God's people. 
it falls on tough times if you use it in the context of evangelism. To reach out, don't do that. It's always used in the context of comfort or encouragement or challenge to God's people. It simply means that God has chosen people for a special purpose. He's moved toward them. Those of us who hear that word as arrogant or exclusive have missed it. Chosen does not mean choice. And the words elect exiles are raised right out of two great epics in God's history with His people. The exodus and the exile. Both marked by times of, well, wilderness wandering and rebellion. Being stubborn. Being a people who are ugly and do not deserve God's mercies, but God continually, repetitively comes to them and says, Mine. Elect. Chosen. I didn't choose you, God says, because of you. I chose you because of me to display grace. You are the display of God's grace. So here's how Peter unpacks what it means to be amongst God's people. To to give them that curahy moment to rise above the fray. And to hear once again who they really are in Christ. He begins in verse 4 and he says, as you come to Him. That's what separates the Christian faith from all other beliefs. It is not centered around a principle or an ethic or a value or or, or a model or a philosophy. It is a hymn. You, believer, find your meaning and center and reality in a person living and breathing and glorious in all His marvelous wonder. Jesus, we see in this passage, is He's the dividing line of history. No other label matters to the believer. It says of Him that He's a living stone. And he's been rejected by men. They will always reject him. But to God, chosen, precious. Jesus himself is the chosen and precious one. But here's the marvel of what he adds to that. You yourselves, reflexive pronouns to make you think me. It's happening to me. You yourselves, Like living stones, just like Jesus, because you're in Him, you're a living stone too, and you're being used for a purpose. Now just think about those words for a moment. Living stone. What a great metaphor. An inanimate, hardened, immovable object is suddenly, strangely made alive. It breathes. It lives. It is a testimony to a divine act of, well, power that you and I would be impossible to muster. 
It's a miracle. That's what God through Peter is saying about you. I don't know if you know this. Kurahi, you're a miracle if you're in Christ. But you're a miracle that's of great use to God's purpose because He says also in verse 5, don't forget you're being built up into a spiritual house. God hasn't called you merely to wait around for heaven to appear. He's called you to be built up. And you're being built up. You're not building. I'm not building. God is building. And you're the living stones used by the architect to construct something that the world has never seen. A spiritual house which he mixes the metaphors, is also a holy priesthood. Priests. Not me. You. All believers, priests, who do what? Well, what priests do? They offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Sacrifices. Priests sacrifice to God and for others. There's a cost to this beautiful status. Hear those words. The elect are those who have been brought to Him. And they are living stones. And each one is hewn specifically, perfectly to fit with other stones. Not a single stone, but stones together. He's giving us a picture of the church. There is no person in the body of Christ who doesn't matter. Who isn't absolutely necessary. You may recall when the pandemic started, humanity was divided into two groups of people. Essential, non-essential. I heard that and I was just so horrified. I'm non-essential. We, we should have gotten maybe stars to stitch into our clothes to tell which of us was which, right? Here's what Peter's saying. You believer in Christ writing to these poor and, well, wayward and even at sometimes rebellious people, beleaguered under the pressures of Rome and all of its threats, who in the, in the scope of world history were completely insignificant, ordinary people. He's saying to them, Kurahi, living stones in the hand of the almighty divine architect. Don't forget who you are absolutely essential. And as Christ is precious, I know you hate to hear these words, They're, they can be embarrassing. Your, your, your cheeks may blush. God says of you, precious. That's what verse 7 it says. It says, so the honor is for you who believe. Actually, literally it says, for you, strange language, for you is the preciousness. Now think about that for a moment. Of all of the things God could look at in His creation and say, that's most precious to me. It's not Mount Everest. It's not Alpha Centauri. 
It's not the Mariana Trench. It's not the glories and wonders of the beautiful oceans as they roll in and out on the most pristine shores. It's you. That's a phenomenal statement. He says later in that passage, you are his own possession. Me? Great. What does that mean? Well, think of it this way. If you're the possession of God, it's like you finding a pencil in your pew that's been worn and nubbed and chewed on perhaps, and you think, this is worthless. But what have I, what have I told you? That pencil belonged to William Shakespeare. Suddenly the value would be more than anybody in this room could afford to purchase. That's the point he's making. You are elect, the chosen of God, being built up into a spiritual house. You matter inside these walls. Go and tell others outside, you matter. You're essential. But Peter is a realist and understands that they're, yes, elect, but they're exiles as well. Exiles. What is an exile? Where there's somebody who sojourns through a land that is not their own. In a time that perhaps is not their own. Interacting with a culture and ways of life that may not be their own. That's, that's part of what it means to be brought out of. Chapter 4, Peter writes exclusively about the suffering of Christians. And he's not speaking about the suffering we feel when you know, I, I discover I'm, I'm sick or the loss of a loved one. That is a suffering. But the suffering he addresses here is the threat of being a minority in a world that is hostile toward it. More on this next week, but the people literally had their homes ransacked and their property seized because as Christians they had no rights. How would they respond to that will be the question we look at next week. But what Peter is pointing out here is he's addressing a temptation in the midst of that threat, in the midst of that pressure. What did the Christians do who felt the external threats pounding in on them? Well, some of them quit. And I'll read you some quotes next week about how that process went in the Roman world. They just quit. They turned in their membership vows and they made a loyal pledge to Caesar, proclaiming that He, not Christ, was their true and living God. Then there were others who didn't necessarily quit, but they accommodated. You know what that means. They were Christians, yet they were Romans. And the Roman typically outweighed the Christian. And so, as Jesus taught, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, that was dispensed because that's not the way the world works. And so you wield not the weapons of Christ, but the weapons of the world. Hit me, I hit you back. Like Sonny Corleone. They came after us, we go after them. 
So Peter's writing this to remind them, yes, you're in exile, but it's not new to God's people. It has always been. And so verse 9, he quotes right out of the Exodus, a people who had been released from slavery by the hand of God, who would encounter in their wilderness journey king after king, people after people, threat after threat, always tempting them to say, enough. But God put these words on them as they moved in the wilderness and said, this is what I want you to remember. This is your witness. This is who you are. You are a chosen race. And a royal priesthood. And a holy nation. A people for His own possession. Now, The combination of those words is fascinating. So hear this. Let me bore you for just one more moment. Chosen people, holy nation, people nation. He uses two very interesting words to describe God's people. One we kind of get. The other is unique. But when you put them together, wow. People. The word there is the same word we would use for genetics, right? The DNA of a person, genoi. You have a biological history. But then he adds to that holy nation. And the word he uses there is ethnoi, like ethnicity. Hear hear what he's saying for a moment. I, I think this is what he's getting at. You are a whole new people group. As a Christian, your people group has never existed on the face of the earth. It is drawn from every tribe and tongue and nation, but it's new. Now think about that for a moment. If, if, if God's people are an ethnicity, hear the implication of that. Peter's telling these people, you're not a club. You're an ethnicity. You're a new people. You know, clubs are great. I'm, and I'm a member of several. I love them. But the thing about clubs is that the members usually just share one common interest but it doesn't define their life. If I join the country club, what do I I share an interest, golf and maybe eating privileges. Or if I'm a member of the Rotary or whatever we have here, Exchange or Kiwanis and so forth, we have a commitment to service and raising charity for a cause, but it's not the definition of my whole life. Or the garden club, We draw together to share something about beauty and nature and learning about plants, but it doesn't define all of my choices, values, habits, instincts. But you can't do that with your ethnicity. A person who's Irish, no matter where they live, cannot stop being Irish. A person who's Zimbabwean, no matter where they are, they can't stop being Irish. Zimbabwean. They don't even know it's affecting their worldview, their choices, their ideas, the way they react and act toward all sorts of things, the values that they hold, even the simplest habits of, well, how you, how you stack the toilet paper upside or downside. It's just there. That's the language Peter's using. As a believer, You've been made a whole new ethnicity. And those are the habits and values that flow out of you. 
I guess God would tell us, hey, I did not execute my son to create a club. I led him to execution to create a kingdom of priests who die. A new people, he says, to infect the world. To speak of his excellencies which are light and mercy. Why? I've been shown it. I've seen it. So we might ask the question, well, how do we find the energy and, well, the motivation to be what we're called to be? This living stone, precious and being built up. What do I do? Or how do I muster myself to really go out and think of myself as a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation? How, how will that massage into my heart. Well, Peter uses this word several times here. Cornerstone. Cornerstone. He says, Jesus, though rejected by men, the capstone, which has been booted, useless, has actually become the cornerstone. The cornerstone of a new humanity. And what a cornerstone is, it's the first stone laid in an architecture. We don't do that now. We've got different tools. But in the ancient world, the cornerstone was the first thing you laid. The ground had to be perfectly level, and the stone had to be absolutely precise, the best they could do. It was the measure that from that, all other things would be stacked. If it's tilted, well, the building would collapse. If it's weak, the building would crumble. And all other stones from that point on would be measured and placed and positioned according to that cornerstone. That's the image he uses of Jesus. That's what we align ourselves with. And we see those marvelous words and we, we massage this truth into our heart. When you get down to verse 9 and 10, look at those words, darkness, mercy, people, and Peter would have known, and he repeats this even in this epistle, listen, this is what changes you. Jesus, the eternal light, became darkness to we who were darkness and brought into His marvelous light. We were darkness brought to light. Jesus, the only person in all of God's history that fully deserved mercy, was shown none. He was given judgment and wrath. Why? Well, for me, that I would receive mercy. There's no tap dance I can perform that would win God over. But Jesus has presented Himself. And I've been given mercy. I don't deserve. Now how will I look at other people? And then, you're not a people. That's right out of Hosea. God said, my people are so rebellious, I'm going to name them Lo-Ami, not my people. Jesus becomes lo-ami, 
You're not my people. For what reason, Lord? For them who are not my people, now my people. You and I come this morning to this table and we see all of those fabrics and parts woven together. It's a beautiful picture of this gospel that we love and cherish. And it's a reminder to us, this is my food. Those out there perhaps, they live on a different food. But this is my diet. The bread and the wine and the body and the blood of Christ. And the beauty of this is there is a spiritual house being communicated. We call it communion. Common union. And in Christ, no matter our preferences, no matter our pledges, no matter our loyalties, that overrules the common union. So you could say perhaps this table this morning as you come is a marvelous one, two, three, kurahi. Let's pray. Lord, in Christ alone we stand. And even as we stand alone, it is together. And we ask, Father, that You will give us the wisdom to see the marvel of Your grace. And may it affect us. Lord, we ask that You would be um, our light. And that we would again see Your mercy. And that, Lord, we would acknowledge that we are part of Your people above all others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.